Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Andrew Hubert, a lecturer, writer, and consultant specializing in negotiating across cultures. The bulk of his professional career has centered on helping international professionals bridge the gap between Western and Asian business. But he has recently relocated to Mexico in order to expand his range of activities to Mexico and Latin America. Andrew, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. To kick us off, we'd love to hear more about your background. What got you started and interested in international matters? And how did you get to where you are now, which is Mexico? Most of my my history centers around China uh, and um, you know Asia. So I got my MBA from uh, NYU in when was it? A long time ago, uh, about 1990, uh, 1989 uh, to be precise. And I studied international finance. And my first stop uh, was was Japan because in those days we thought Japan was going to be the dominant player. Uh, I quickly realized Japan wouldn't be uh, wouldn't wouldn't be the star of this particular show, but uh, this was around the time of Tiananmen. So uh, I knew the future of Asia. I knew the future of Asia was going to be Chinese speaking, but it wasn't a good time to go uh, full mainland. So I went to Taiwan for a few years, and I studied Chinese, and I worked for some local uh, some local banks, some local uh, investment banks. That is where I began to learn about uh, greater China. I returned to the U.S., worked for a big institutional brokerage. It was called WI Carr. It's no longer around, but it was very famous in its day. And I um, returned to the United States, and I I worked for WICO uh, for a a few years, and I eventually came to uh, run the China desk, which in those days was was. Uh, B shares, H shares, and um, B shares, H shares, and red chips. Uh, we don't use those phrases anymore. But that was how I really got started in China. Uh, through the 90s, I was ferrying clients, big, big investment banks, uh, investment banker clients. Uh, we, we call them we called them hedge funds at the time. I don't think they're called that anymore. But uh, I would bring them over to 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 China to check out factories. And this is what I, I call town car tourism. Uh, we flew business class to, to Shanghai. We were met at the airport by uh, a big black town car uh, with a polite bilingual uh, representative of the bank, took us to our, in, uh, our international hotel. The next day, we were met by another polite, young, bilingual employee. And everything that we did in China was assisted. Every, there were a thousand invisible little hands making sure we never had any problems. And by, in this way, we thought we understood all there was to understand about China. And, um, you know, in a sense, we did. We, we knew the kind of China we were seeing, but it certainly wasn't real China. So fast forward a little bit. I, I stayed with that firm for a while, really liked China, really liked uh, the emerging markets of Asia, did not like finance that much. So after the dot-com bust, found myself with a lot of time in my hands, I decided to return to China uh, full time and, and really make a go of it. So in 2002, I, uh, I, I returned to Shanghai 
And I, you know, I was, I was going to school, but um, I had a lot of friends in China. So I, I took a job running a local firm for some people I knew. And this was, you know, Chinese Chinese. This was not bilingual Chinese. This was not uh, investment banker, you know, working for a multinational Chinese. This was local. And now, whereas before there were a thousand invisible little hands helping me along, now there were a, a, a thousand different hands sort of blocking me and, and, and dropping things and making the simplest communication really difficult, really impossible. And that is when I started to learn about uh, real China, when I was trying to, to, to manage, uh, manage a local firm. And that's where I developed the skill set that I would later bank on of, you know, I learned to manage in China. I learned to manage locals in China. And that was the skill set that eventually, um, you know, I, I made my living on uh, w helping others, helping Western firms, usually European firms, to manage teams and to uh, negotiate in China. And um, in, in those days, in 2002 and 2005, when I was you know, doing, doing my best work, uh, we had a little expression in China, which was, anything is possible, but nothing is easy. And we don't say that anymore, <laughs> because now not anything is possible. Uh, but th those, were, um, th th those were the times when, when China was going through its, we called it the wild, wild west, when there really, there, there, there weren't that many laws in place and the, you know, the laws that were in place tended to contradict with, with other laws. And this was a, a very, it was a huge, a time of huge opportunity in China, but also a, a lot of challenges. And the successful firms and the successful uh, entrepreneurs were the ones that could uh, navigate the, um, the, the, the regulatory and the economic landscape and still keep their, their, their home goals in mind. So I lived in China very successfully until about 2012. And then um, displaying tremendous hubris, I decided that the success I was having in China was, was all because of me and not because of the environment. So I tried transplanting my success uh, back to New York and it was not as successful as I had hoped. People in New York just didn't care that much. So uh, I eventually decided to uh, return to Asia, but instead of China, I, you know, I expanded a little bit and I started um, developing my, uh, my connections and my knowledge of Southeast Asia. So I started out in Thailand. Uh, Thailand was good, a good place to do work, not a great place to do business. So I migrated over to Vietnam uh, to continue my um, you know, to, to broaden my, my base in Southeast Asia. And it was going really, really well until this pesky COVID-19 decided to um, sort of ruin the party for everyone. I stayed in Vietnam for a while, but uh, this past June 15th, my visa expired for the last time. The Vietnamese government had been very generous about rolling over those visas, but declined to do so uh, this, this summer, not just for me, for everyone. So um, I decided to take stock of the situation, both the political situation at home and the international economic situation abroad. And uh, I decided this was a really good time to expand my base a little bit further and uh, to look at Latin America. Uh, for reasons that I'm sure we're going to get into, I think that Latin America holds a lot of promise and a lot of potential for investors and business people and frontline negotiators from all over the world, but especially for Americans. So I have been living in Oaxaca, Mexico since uh, July 5th, since July 5th, uh, so uh, about seven weeks now. Uh, so my, my Mexican career is, has been brief, but um, extremely enlightening and I think extremely fruitful. But that brings you uh, up to speed to today, August 30. Andrew, thanks for, for that overview and, and certainly a very interesting career track. And we will want to delve more into your experiences in, in Vietnam and Mexico, but I want to 
go back to to China for a while. And I spent quite a bit of time in, in China myself, roughly around the same era when you were there. And one thing that I can identify with what 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 you described, right? There was, you know, the Wild West China. For all of us who who lived and experienced that China, we we know exactly what you're what you're describing. And there's clearly been a, a a shift that will be easy to recognize for those of us who experienced that Wild West China. Might not be that clear um, for people who are observing from from afar, who maybe see China in very monolithic terms and can't quite see why why anyone would think that there's been a, a a shift what is it that that has changed you know when you say that we don't say that anymore because now not everything is possible take us through that through that change and what that has meant for businesses operating in China and for just for regular foreigners trying to to get ahead in China what what has changed the biggest change for me is that China was a developing market, and now, in many ways, it is a developed market. There's still economic growth, but it has shifted. China, from you know, from my my experience in China, it started in about 1996. Uh, let's take it to 2006. 2006 was what I identify as the the, the peak. That was peak China as far as American entrepreneurs and American multinationals entering China uh, was. 2006 was the, the high watermark. That's when entrepreneurs were granted full recognition uh, under the law. That's when foreigners no longer needed, in many cases, no longer needed a joint venture partner. And that was the time when the Western influence in China was as strong and as positive as it has been. That all changed in 2008 with the financial crash, and that really ushered in what, what I call Globalism 2.0. Globalism 2.0 started about 2008 and is still in the formative stage right now. The idea here is that China has shifted from being a pure production play, from being just a, a, the factory of the world. Now it wants to be the service provider of, or the service, con the, the, the consumer and the service provider of, if not the world, of its sphere of influence. So what's changing is, A, China is now a more of a consumer than a manufacturer. China doesn't feel it needs Western assistance to manufacture, whereas before it did. And China now feels that its economy should focus on consumption and focus on providing services as opposed to doing contract manufacturing for Western brands. And this has resulted in a sea change in the way China views its own economy and uh, in the way it views its place in the world. As far as the economy, it wants to climb the tech ladder. It wants to climb the value chain. And American style or Western style contract manufacturing has has played out, has played the role it's going to play in China. Uh, it's still there still be a place for it, but for the most part, Chinese uh, the Chinese government, um, Zhong Nanhai, the the Chinese advisors to the government, are no longer excited about attracting multinationals to do low value added production work. They want to do their own. They want the R and D to be done in China. They want uh, they want to to um, how, to um, vertically integrate the production uh, the production chain. So, whereas you know, to take one of the more controversial but more important examples of rare earth minerals, rare earth metals, whatever we're calling them today, but the uh, the rare earth minerals. China used to do a very good job of pulling them out of the ground, doing the initial refining, and then shipping the powder to Japan and the United States, where they would be put into production to make uh, magnets and very high-tech, high-value-added products like batteries, and they, they were using wind turbines, they're using electronics, they're using screens, and that's where all the value was. China would pull these things out of the ground and refine them in a very dirty process, and then ship the, you know, what was still considered uh, raw materials or very low-level materials to 
more advanced markets. China isn't going to be doing that anymore. China now uh, wants to maintain the, the, uh, the, the part of the production cycle that is more high value added. And this is changing China's relationship with the West, and it's changing its relationship with, um, with manufacturers, you know, contract manufacturers in general. So this all goes along with, I mean, the Xi administration is, is, has been, you know, they, they, they would have been uh, much more reticent to keep the doors to the, the rest of the world open anyway. In a non-COVID situation, you'd still be seeing a lot of the same changes you're, you're seeing, where uh, the government is now much more interested in changing the business as usual from low value added export to high value added manufacturing. We're going to see that anyway. Uh, and in order to see that, you've got to, you, you need a lot more laws on the Chinese side. You need much more uniform, uh, much more uh, effective regulation. And that's something we're certainly seeing. When I was living in China in the, the early 2000s, you know, it was, a, it was pretty much an open joke that uh, someone would say, yeah, my, my, um, the tax guy came, my 22-year-old secretary just renegotiated my tax package with the government. And it was funny and it was hilarious because no one else knew, you know, there, there were no effective laws. You know, the laws that were on the, on the paper, that were on the books, the paper laws had no relationship to what was really happening. That's over. That's over. We're, we're, you're not seeing that anymore. Uh, and that's causing a lot of dislocation for, for many American firms. Um, then COVID hit. Then uh, the Trump administration ramped up uh, what is looking more and more like a trade war and possibly even a new Cold War. I mean, that started in, um, I think, 2018, 2019. Um, so uh, you, you've got a perfect storm of contentious relations between the Western business community, especially the American business community, and the Chinese regulatory authority. The relationships between individual business people uh, in the United States and in China, that's fine. That was never the source of contention. But as far as governments go, as far as regulations go, um, there, is, uh, there, there, there is a new, um, I'm calling it a trade war. There's a new trade war and it does not show signs of getting better. It shows show signs of getting more contentious. So the, the issue I'm having with my clients and, and my, my students is um, the, 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 the American business community is waiting for things to get back to normal. But my job is to tell people that this is the new normal, that there are going to be uh, new barriers to, 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 um, to business. And the thing you've got to worry about is not the tariffs which aren't going to go away anytime soon, not the existing regulations, which aren't going to go away anytime soon, but the unintended consequences of new regulations and new uh, regulatory enforcement that is going to have a negative impact on people's business without them knowing it. Without, I mean, you know the tariff stands at 15% or 20%, whatever is affecting your, your business. You, you, can, you, can, I, you can work with that. But what you might not be able to work with is new supply chain hiccups, uh, new, new inspections, new uh, certifications that you're going to need, both on the U.S. side and on the Chinese side. That is going to be impossible to predict. And that's what's going to kill a lot of people's transactions. Not necessarily their businesses, but their China trade, their China business, their China transaction that they've been doing since you know, 1990, that is now in jeopardy over unintended consequences of laws that either have just been passed or are yet to be passed. And that's uh, what I think is the, the biggest danger for a U.S.-China business right now. Can we explore this a little bit more? I, I find that very interesting. You alluded to some of, of what this might look like, for example, with new certification requirements. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you are pointing to the possibility that it's not just the new regulations that'll come out and, uh, and, and that, that will be there in black and white for everyone to see. 
but perhaps the climate in in which that is uh, taking place, and perhaps the climate that that develops. And and quite honestly, I think one of the best examples I can think of, of of how that dynamic plays out is right here in the United States with the way that our own government agencies sometimes take the laws, the regulations that are already there. And depending on the political winds uh, blowing around them or on other factors, there's uh, a certain direction that that, that things take. Uh, there's a perceived need for, for tougher enforcement that then ends up creating very messy situations. And I think in some cases, even the government agencies that are leading the, the the charge with with the way they enforce things, they sometimes end up in a in a mess of their own making that they just didn't anticipate and cannot get out of. I mean, in some cases, of course, they 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 have to enforce the laws that are that are being passed. But there's also a lot of, uh, in my opinion, at least self imposed headaches. For example. Take Customs and Border Protection is the best example that I can think of with a lot of their own internal responses to, to a lot of what's going on with the trade war. So turning back to, to, to China, uh, again, could you just give a little bit more color to, to what you see happening with some potential examples of, of, of what we might see and what do you think the practical impact will be on businesses? One of the clearest cases is something that's that's happening now and, and just is still unfolding, and that was the uh, the Xinjiang cotton boycott, uh, where Western brands, Western manufacturers of of apparel, clothing, um, were prohibited were were uh, uh, prevented from uh, using cotton that. Uh, was produced in Xinjiang because there was fear of human rights abuses and de facto slave labor. So Americans and uh, Europeans had to demonstrate that they were not using um, you know, cotton from the Xinjiang re region that was uh, the result of human rights abuses. China ch really chafes at this sort of uh, this sort of regulation, and they turned around and boycotted or instituted boycotts or instituted uh, regulations uh, about, of companies that were observing the boycott. So H&M was a, a, a famous, uh, I think they're British or European, they're a retailer. And they were in effect forced to leave the China market or you know, they had their, their China business uh, dramatically reduced both because of I'm doing air quotes here, spontaneous uh, boycotts from, from consumers and uh, new, you know, new reviews on their business licensing. The Chinese reaction, business reactions to Western regs are, are going to be a factor. But I think going forward, you'll start to see China uh, imposing its own sanctions, um, a lot of the, the, I don't know how old you are, but a lot of your viewers were too young to remember something called most favored nation status. And this was something that China had to apply for, I believe, twice a year up until I think Clinton is the one that got rid of it. So from, from Nixon to Clinton, uh, from the Nixon admin, admin to the Clinton administration, China had to uh, pass uh, most favored nation uh, certification in Congress. And uh, China always, and there were only a handful of countries that had to do this. So I think it was like China, Libya, uh, and uh, Cuba. Uh, there really weren't that many more. And China always hated this. And uh, you know, China has had, up until this administration in China, China always felt it had no choice but to submit to these uh, humiliating uh, regulations and these humiliating procedures. And China, as your listeners will know, does not really like being humiliated. You know, we're already seeing China hang on the, the rhetoric about, you know, friends and, and enemies. If you want an example, just look daily in the paper uh, for China's relations with Australia. Uh, China is, is it's, it's mainly for the headlines, but China is enacting more and more uh, restrictions on the, the trade it does with Australia. Now, in fact, the, the, it, it's not having the, the desired outcome, but it's very useful as a propaganda tool that China is you know, asserting its rights and refusing to be humiliated by Australia. I think we're going to see more and more of that 
uh, as the trade war takes on a life of its own. So my big fears are that um, China is going because China is really trying to burnish its image as the human, the defender of global human rights. So um, and it really chafed under the the Xinjiang cotton um, regulations. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see China um, require that firms uh, certify that they are in compliance with human rights. And that can take on any definition that China wants. Um, so, you know, my, my big fear is that China defines a global, a global human rights standard as access to uh, medical care, which and American firms would have to certify that they are uh, in compliance or with pollution, you know, uh, emissions controls or race relations. China can really has its pick. And you can you can see a shadow of the foreshadowing of this, uh, because when China Daily or or uh, Xinhua News Agency talks about um, America, you know, t- talks about America as the real villain in the human rights drama uh, going on in the world, these are the issues it it, it it picks. And China never really surprises you. China always, um, you know, will will lob out some some warnings and some foreshadowing and, and they'll test the waters and seeing what, what sticks uh, before they, they move ahead with, with an action. So those are the areas I would be very concerned about. I would look for China to start uh, requiring some kind of um, certification or China to, uh, to require um, its firms, meet, you know, firms doing business in China meet some sort of global standard that it's going to decide on. And we, we saw, you know, with the, the Xinjiang cotton, we began to see the, 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 the foreshadowing of this. Uh, so that, that's how I think uh, China is going to move on this. They are going to, under the guise of being a defender of human rights or being a defender of international trade, they are going to require uh, – uh, international firms comply with their domestic rules. So look for data, you know, the, the transparency of data, which has already been very controversial. Uh, so firms are going to have to keep their servers in China uh, that, you know, the servers that apply to, uh, you know, the Chinese part of the market, at least. I think that's already a law, but that that's going to become much more controversial. Uh, and, you know, how well firms um, respect their sovereignty claims in the South China Sea and in Taiwan and in Hong Kong, how well uh, firms uh, respect China's um, rules on monopoly, uh, how well uh, firms respect China's rules on uh, emissions and the environment. These are all things that didn't used to be your problem your listener. But going forward, if you want to do business in China, this may be your problem going forward. Andrew, the, when I think about doing business across the world, I think of the, the laws themselves and regulations, how they're implemented. And then I think about the human aspect behind all of those laws and regulations. And you've touched on that a bit with how China was in the early days. I'd love to hear more from you about your uh, some cross-cultural comparisons about who is easiest to do business with, who is most compatible with uh, Western business uh, ideals and the way of doing business in the West. Now, you know, between your time in Japan, China, Vietnam, Thailand, now Mexico, can you give us some kind of broad, uh, broad brush strokes about, um, about dealing with negotiation and conflict and uh, general, general business dynamics? Okay, um, if you want to do business at a, you know business at scale, if you want if you're a multinational and you want to produce eighty percent of your your brand's output overseas, uh, old China, China pre uh, two thousand let's say two thousand eighteen was the way to go. China was set up for it, and this is one of the big differences you'll see doing business in China versus doing business in, say, uh, Vietnam or Thailand. 
Um, China was it was it was state policy in China to um, accept you know high 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 scale of business. So if you went to the Canton Fair in Shenzhen, even if you didn't know anything about China, even if you didn't know anything about doing business in China, you just walk into the uh, into the the Canton Fair with your little little laminate with your 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 uh, ID, and everything was done for you. Purchasing, customs, supply chain, uh, everything was 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 arranged, or you were just one step away from having that arranged. So, in terms of large scale business, which a lot of you know China China Law Blog uh, listeners like, uh, as far as scale of business, nothing beats China. Nothing ever will, and it, it, it will never be that way again. Uh, from now on, your supply chain is going to be DIY. It's going to be do it yourself. In China, between the special economic zones and government policy uh, and uh, you know, a, a, a business community that was geared to contract manufacturing, uh, it was a, a lot of a, a, a lot of your your mistakes, a lot of your your sins were made up for in the marketplace. There would be someone to help you. They may not give you the kind of help you wanted. They may not have given you the kind of quality you wanted, but you could transact. Fast forward to other parts of the world, like Vietnam is probably my favorite for this, as far as Americans go. Um, Vietnam will not, they don't have the same uh, ambition to be the, the, the factory of the world. So if you go to a place like Vietnam and your production, your product or your, your method or your material or your specifications don't meet what the factory is doing, they will give you um, their version of a flat no. They will tell you that they just can't do it. Now, in China, that started the conversation, but in places like Vietnam and Thailand, that will end the conversation. When they say they're not going to do it, they're, they're not kidding. And that's something that Americans are going to have to get used to. Uh, Americans, uh, especially with, with in, in respect to manufacturing in China, they were used to a lot of the, the dots being connected for them, or they were used to being just one step away from, from having an answer. Now, as uh, you know, uh, my old friend Dan Harris uh, or, or uh, uh, Dan and Steve used to tell the other side of that story of what happened when these trades went bad. And yes, they went bad a lot. I understand that. But what I'm saying is there, there did exist in China a complete supply chain of both uh, manufacturing and services so that you, if you walked into China with money in your pocket and, and some version of a design in your hand, you could transact business. The same is not going to be true once you leave China. Once you leave China and you go to places like Vietnam or Malaysia or Thailand or as we'll discuss, Mexico, there's, there's going to be a lot more for you to do as far as uh, quality, design, uh, and supply chain. A lot of this stuff was done for you in China. Now, that's on the institutional side. We will never see a country as eager and as willing and as able to accept large amounts of business uh, in in scale in, in in manufacturing, Vietnam. You know, other people are talking about Vietnam as taking on that role. The Vietnamese are not talking about taking on that role. Vietnam is not going to be the factory of the world. It doesn't have the scale. It doesn't have uh, the, the the resources. Doesn't have the infrastructure, and it doesn't want it. Vietnam does not need uh, to be the factory of the world. Thailand is certainly not going to be. Malaysia, no. Um, Indonesia, no. Uh, is it going to be Mexico? You know, possibly. The Mexican uh, business community is, you know, they're, they're up for, for, for taking risks. Uh, they are, are willing, but they simply don't have the infrastructure here. Now, who's going to build the infrastructure? Uh, the Mexican government, well, maybe. They've been working on, you know, they're, they're, if you know Mexico, you know that they are uh, ambitious in terms of what they will talk about. But the infrastructure on the ground is, um, you know, the infrastructure in place is simply not sufficient. And they, it's not a priority. Are the Western companies going to build up the infrastructure? 
I'm not really, I, I don't see that happening. Uh, as a matter of fact, the only, the only economy uh, that has shown a willingness to, um, you know, put, put boots on the ground and build up infrastructure is China. And is China willing to build infrastructure in Latin America and Mexico? Yeah, it is. But that's not going to have the outcome that Westerners uh, want. And this is, I think, one of the great challenges facing the uh, American economy uh, and to a lesser extent, the Western economy uh, in general. But the American economy in particular, the American business community, is going to have to make some, some hard decisions about how it regards Mexico and Latin America. Because if it continues on the same path that it has been on uh, of benign neglect at best, often malign neglect, but benign neglect, uh, it's going to find that it's, um, it's not the partner of choice for these developing economies in Latin America. Uh, China is already making moves in Argentina. Um, it's already making moves here in Mexico. And I think that it, once it does a few of these big infrastructure deals, you know, these, these big manufacturing uh, facilities uh, with the accompanying infrastructure, once it does a couple of these, it is going to build up, uh, a, um, it's going to build up momentum and it's going to build a trajectory that Western, you know, Americans, American business people and American politicians are going to be very alarmed about. And I think that if we have a desire to, to stop this, then um, it's something we have to start working on now. But what I've seen is Americans are not really up to speed, let's put it that way, on the risks and the, uh, the challenges that they're gonna face moving production out of China. We've been talking about it for two years and I, I still see um, a lot more planning, a lot more hesitation, and a lot more uh, bad compromises than we should be seeing at this at this phase. Andrew, you, you bring up a very interesting point regarding China's influence in Latin America. I think that it's fair to say that in general, even within the China watching community, I think there is much more awareness, uh, much more chatter about China's influence in, say, Africa, mm -hmm. perhaps other parts of the world. I think I think Latin America is a bit relegated when it comes to that conversation. And I think it's in part, at least, because of just a general relegation that the continent, the region has suffered for, 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 for a long time. I went to Argentina a few years ago and was surprised at the level of Chinese influence there. And had I not been coming from China, was, was I not a resident of China, I might have missed some of those signs. It might not be obvious to someone going to, to Argentina who has not spent time in, in, in China. Uh, that influence might not be, might not be that, that, that clear. But one of the things that, that stood out was one of the more prominent buildings in central Buenos Aires was, I believe, ICBC, you know, or yeah. uh, one of the other Chinese banks. But I think it was ICBC, like very visible. Now, if you've never been to China, you know, you have no idea what ICBC is, right? Even if somebody tells you that's a bank, you might, maybe, maybe people will, will not really, they might think it's, it's a local bank. But uh, I was well aware of, of, you know, what ICBC stood for and, and you know who, who they are um so so i do think that there there's a very uh, troubling pattern there and it's it's not perhaps because of this uh china creep that is of concern to some people although although there's something to that it's just the fact that it it, it reveals this this lack of concern with what's happening right here in our, in our own region one idea that i keep coming back to and i'd like to hear your your thoughts on it you 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 seem better place than most people to to address this. And, you know, th this is coming from someone who spent a lot of time in, in China. I was there during that peak that you described, you know, 2006, right? That high watermark. I was I was there. But as I reflect more on, on what's happened in China and how things have gone here 
in the United States. Geopolitically, I think that we, we will we will look back at, at the 90s in particular and see that choice. I, I remember how big of a deal NAFTA was. Mm-hmm. And looking back with a with a more critical eye, it seems like a, like it was a relatively well thought out, well planned initiative that everyone recognized would, would have consequences for for trade and, and for our economy. But then you had this almost unexpected uh, shift. You know, it's almost as if somehow we decided as, a, as an economy that actually that's not really the path we want, you know, instead of building on, on, on NAFTA. And there's been some of that, by the way. I mean, obviously, there have been other, other treaties. I mean, there is movement in that, in that direction. But it seems like all of that has been overwhelmed by this massive and rather rapid shift to Asia, particularly China, where there was no NAFTA, there was no framework. Everything was, as you described it, much more informal, much less structured. And when I look back, I I can't help but think, I mean, there's no guarantee, but I, I have this feeling that perhaps things would have been better if we had stuck with that that path and had had focused on Mexico, which which is of course a neighboring country with with whom the United States has a, a very unique relationship, and perhaps build on that and strengthen those those trade links to to the rest of of, of Latin America. I mean, now of course people look at China and say, well, there's no way that Latin America could have stood in for China. But if you go back to to the mid '90s and think of how things could have turned out if there had been more focus on on Latin America and some of those countries in the region had been developed as manufacturing destinations, then things perhaps could have been very different. I'd like to hear your, your, your thoughts generally on this. Um, I mean, am I, am I completely off base here? Uh, is that a, a, a pipe dream or do you think that things could have been different if we had looked more critically and had considered the longer term more intensely than, than we have? Things could have been different and things still can be different going forward, but it requires a degree of centralizing the economy and a degree of of state involvement that America wasn't then and and still and and is not now prepared to get involved in. Uh, This is the thing about about China that is is requiring a rethink on some some basic... uh, some basic economics. Um, China was an example of state-controlled economic growth, and we're all surprised it worked. All the all, you know all the classically trained economists uh, and 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 financiers in the United States uh, are of course shocked by this, and we still don't really want to admit it. But uh, centralized um, control of the economy has been very good for China. Uh, they developed infrastructure. And they developed uh, regulations and they, they moved people around to a degree that uh, Americans certainly wouldn't accept at home. And we are not going to pay for it to happen in Mexico. So I, I think that it's, you know, what you're saying is in, in a very broad sense, um, yes, it would, we had the opportunity to develop um, manufacturing in Latin America, and we still do. But it's a matter of um, who is going to take the lead on this. And uh, the, the, the different state actors in Latin America have not really shown themselves to be up to the task. And uh, American, you know, Washington for the last, um, I don't know, let's, let's be generous and say uh, 40 years or so, haven't really been great builders. We, we haven't really done enough with our own infrastructure, you know, our own required infrastructure, just roads and, 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 and water pipes and, um, you know, basic stuff. Uh, we haven't really developed a facility at, at building up infrastructure. So that's going to be a requirement in Latin America. It's, it's who has the, the, the deep enough pockets and who has the expertise and who has the patience to build roads, build, rebuild ports, uh, build power companies, uh, uh, build a power grid, um, build wells, you know, build, build reservoirs, uh, which is my particular problem here where I live in Mexico. Um, so 
it's it's one thing to you know look at the look at the statistics and say yes, Mexico and Latin America have have a lot of potential, but it's quite another to map out a budget and a uh, a timetable for when you're going to turn that potential into reality. And I don't see America doing it anytime soon. Could individual companies do it uh, on a limited basis? Yes. And I think that will happen. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the um, maculadora system is is taking a lot of the oxygen out of the room as far as American involvement in in Mexican business. Uh, I think we need a different approach uh, than that, which is really a a lose-lose scenario for almost everyone except the shareholders of of Ford and General Motors. Uh, But, you know, are people going to build... Uh, build ports and build roads and build these new automated factories. Uh, I think American people are not. I think Chinese people may. may. And that is a a big fear of mine uh, because based on what we're seeing in Africa and what we're seeing in Latin America, it seems that China does have the, uh, the ability and the will to build up infrastructure. Whether or not they're going to do that in Latin America remains to be seen. Andrew, it's hard to believe that we're already almost out of time. We'd like to close with asking you for a recommendation for our listeners, something you've read, something you've listened to, seen lately, basically anything at all. It can be very much on point with what we've discussed today, or it can be something lighter and fluffier. Okay. First, I'm going to shamelessly plug my own project, uh, Globalism 2.0, which you can see on globalism2.com. It is a podcast that uh, I'm just taking out of hiatus now, and I am going to be ramping up again, actually this week, um, talking about the, the new globalism, uh, Globalism 2.0, what's been happening in the world um, since uh, the old globalism ended. I'm putting the date on that at 2008. And we're entering a, a new and uh, more interesting world where the United States is not – the United States is definitely a player, but we're not the only player anymore. Uh, now we will have to contend with a more activist China, a more activist uh, Europe, and uh, other pockets of – or not necessarily pockets, but other players, other spheres of influence – uh, that are going to make your life as a frontline negotiator more exciting, but also more um, more risky. Uh, I recommend that people start uh, looking at least at Mexico. Latin America would be nice, but at least at Mexico. My two favorite sources here are uh, MexicoNewsDaily.com and Mexico-Now.com. Uh, those are two of my favorite sources for figuring out what's going on in Mexico. Uh, and uh, I'm still watching Vietnam very carefully. So my favorite sites there are vietnamnet.vn slash en slash business. And if you're watching uh, Vietnam, the American Chamber in Vietnam does a lot of publications that will really keep you up to speed much better than the official press. Uh, if you want a, a view of the entire Southeast Asia region, take a look at businesstimes.com.sg. This is out of Singapore. They are uh, like the New York City or the Wall Street of Southeast Asia. But to hear more about what I'm talking about, globalism2.com is my site. And um, shamelessly plugging once again, uh, that's a good way to keep up to speed. Excellent. Thank you, Andrew. Fred, what do you have for us today? I stumbled upon a great article right before we started recording, and it actually touches on on some of the subjects that we've discussed during the podcast. So, so it it has that direct uh, relevance, which is not always the case with <laughs> with my recommendations. But basically, this article provides an overview of China's influence in Tonga. The uh, Pacific Island nation, and it's titled "Meth, Vanilla, and Gulags: How China Has Overtaken the South Pacific One Island at a Time." It's out in Politico, and the author is Susanna Luthi, L-U-T-H-I. But as always, we will have a link um, on our on our website when we when we publish the the podcast. A fascinating article. 
in some ways, the story will will have familiar uh, echoes for for those who track China, especially its involvement overseas, development projects, the presence of uh, Chinese workers there. But um, but it's it's really well written, really fascinating, and then of course. Part of what really jumps out is is the attention China is paying to a pretty small country, right? I think that in itself um, speaks volumes. So so check this out and uh, tip of the hat to Shannon Brandau for pointing me to that article. Uh, and Jonathan, what about you? My recommendation today is 100% fluff. <laughs> I, I stumbled upon... Honest Movie Trailers, uh, it's a channel on YouTube, and they take popular movies and popular you know, sets of movies, uh, you know, like take the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something like uh, the original Indiana Jones trilogy, and they do an Honest Movie Trailer. One of the best things is the they have a, a guy who does the amazing voiceovers. You know, he sounds like he's doing the real trailer for the movie, right? So really impressive, a lot of fun to listen to. They're, they're short, you know, five minutes or so each. It's comedy, right? So they're picking apart the movies for uh, inherent flaws, things that are inconsistent in the storyline, but also just fun things that you might have missed, uh, even if you're a big fan of the movies. So highly recommend that if you've got some downtime and you want something that is serious fluff, honest movie trailers on YouTube. And with that, Andrew, I want to thank you again for being with us. It's been a lot of fun. We've enjoyed your wide-ranging expertise and hope that we can catch up with you again sometime in the future. Guys, it was a real pleasure. Sorry the, the time went so fast. Look forward to sitting down with you again. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. (laughs) 